You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 3rd of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, UK Prime Minister Theresa May makes a surprise visit to France, either to discuss Brexit with French President Emmanuel Macron or defect. My guests Paige Reynolds, Chiara Romella and Ben Ryland will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the end of Italy's experiment in monthly free museum entrance, the overt haste of the creative industries to congratulate themselves on their own diversity, and how how and why an awkward, anxious Finnish cartoon character has become a star in China. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Paige Reynolds, Chiara Ramella and Ben Ryland. Welcome all. First of all, those keeping count will be aware that it's a little over eight months until the United Kingdom is due to leave the European Union. Those who can still bear to follow the process will also be aware that the UK's preparations for this sundering would be considered behind schedule by someone who is merely proposing to move house. In what appears a weirdly belated recognition of the urgency of matters, British Prime Minister Theresa May has cut short her summer break to spoil the holiday of French President Emmanuel Macron. Uh, Chiara, first of all, the the French newspapers are rather unkindly uh, calling this a a cry for help. Um, Is is, is that fair? Probably. Uh, I mean, I'm... (laughs) I, I think I, I do side on, on the French side of things. I think Theresa May is going to Macron with the knowledge that he's a staunch Europeanist. So I don't think that she is under any impression that he will forego his his European credentials. But I do think that perhaps the geographical proximity with France, the shared interests and the fact that they are ultimately the close neighbours, uh, also interested from a very practical point of view from the movement of people and goods between the two countries may give them a bit of a special talking point which they may need to talk about specifically between them two. Paige, does that seem plausible to you? Obviously, with the obvious exception of Ireland, France is the country which is probably going to be plunged into the most difficulty uh, by Brexit due to that geographical proximity. But really, is there any imaginable point to this? Because the, the only side that France is going to take is that of the European Union, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's pretty tricky to say. I would say that I think there is still some value in May being able to sit down one-to-one and say, look, this is the Brexit plan that I see. This is what we mean by the white paper and this is the political situation back home. And I think it is important to have that dialogue perhaps out of Brussels. I don't think she's going to have negotiating power outside of Brussels, but I think having sort of some kind of dialogue with Macron um, is is certainly not a bad idea. Um yeah, and I think that I think generally though I think France the the paper uh, the white paper the what it outlines I think that France actually is in quite a good position. Um, the trading in goods is still happening, but in terms of like financial services, for instance, um, Paris can kind of just position itself to take sort of big European bank contracts. Um, and in terms of uh, common interests with security, um, I think maybe that would be something that Macron would be lend his ear to a bit more. Um, but I think we'll see. 
Ben, back here in the UK, uh, United as it still is for the moment, uh, there has been increasing talk about the possibility and the consequences of a no-deal Brexit. Have you started hoarding yet? <laughs> I started packing, um, <laughs> at least. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are a few people who are quite intelligent and quite senior in the business community who are treating this with some degree of seriousness, which is a little bit alarming because if you look at uh, any degree of certainty in Westminster at the moment, you just don't find anything uh, about anything. So when you look at, at the wider world and realise there are these people who are reading the newspapers every day, they're paying attention to the facts and what what's happening in, in the rest of Europe, and they're seeing this as a serious possibility, it does start to get a little bit concerning. And one would expect that at some point the government will need to come forward and, and maybe get their hands on that sort of message, because if, if they can't make it clear that they're actually in control of something, anything, then the louder message is going to be, oh no, look, there's chaos happening. And then what does that do to the electorate? Do they start to feel a little bit insecure about what comes next? I, I would say so, yeah. Uh, Chiara, what does happen over the next, over the next few months uh, when businesses, and they will, start actually panicking properly and publicly and loudly, saying that you, know, you can't, and you can't run a business with any kind of supply chain or any kind of forward planning like this. Businesses think further ahead than eight months, even if governments don't. Well, I think when we think about the situation right now and whether no deal is scaremongering, whether we should panic and stockpile or not, we need to think back about the times before the referendum when a lot of people who were backing the idea of leaving the UK were saying that the that the people who were for remaining in the EU had this horrifically nightmarish vision of a potential exit from the from the UK and that there, it wasn't true that there was no plan. Now, obviously, with that being now the reality where we're in right now i think there is point to the scaremongering of the of the no deal and therefore the businesses should at least in my opinion definitely take a, a view that is to prepare for the worst possible opportunity for the for the worst possible outcome and there is no other way to behave right now i think Paige, do you think the no-deal talk is scaremongering, or do you think there is anything in the theory which I have just invented that, that Theresa May is actually attempting to save the country uh, by sabotaging Brexit through a, a, a sort of camouflage of feigned incompetence? Yeah, I mean, perhaps, but that's pretty risky. Um, yeah, I think, I think there's definitely truth um, in saying that you know, Jeremy Hunt's been going around uh, his little European tour and saying there might be no deal. They've obviously released um, action plans to businesses about how this might unfold. And you do wonder maybe they're doing that so we're a little bit more lenient towards the checkers plan because we think, oh God, that would be really, really, really bad. Um, and actually, yeah, I mean, no deal would be terrible. I mean, the IMF study, there's a study they've just released um, on the five-year effect on GDP of a no-deal Brexit. Um, and GDP in Britain and Ireland would be down around 4% um, in uh, as little as five years with uh, other European countries suffering, but not nearly as much. Uh, Netherlands, Denmark and Belgium would be down around 1%. And actually France would only be down about 02 or 0.3%. So I think the UK has got to be pretty careful um, about saying no deal. I wouldn't be surprised at all if she's not actually talking to Macron about Brexit. 
at all. I, I think you maybe think she just she... got a bit bored of her holiday and <clears throat> thought, hey, a private island with Emmanuel Macron sounds like a bit of all right. Like that, that's a holiday I would go on, definitely. <laughs> or, or, or she's just discovered she's got a French grandparent and she's applying for the passport. <laughs> um, anyway, plenty to look forward to on that front, obviously. Uh, so let us look now at Italy, where there is grim tidings for those visitors to the country who enjoy spending their time there looking at broken crockery and fingerprint smudged glass cases. Italy's new culture minister, Alberto Bonasoli, has a announced the abolition of the Domenica al Museo program under which the major Italian museums were free on the first Sunday of each month. Bonasoli said, probably accurately, if somewhat tactlessly, that the cultural sites had been devalued by the, quote, thousands of foreigners who show up, unquote. Um, Chiara, speaking on behalf of all Italian people, as we frequently (laughs) ask you to do, uh, is this going to be a popular initiative? Because it does seem actually quite weird when you look at it from London, where all the major museums are all free, all the time. I don't think it's going to be popular at all. I think it's a very bad moment for the culture minister to be making this announcement as well, communications-wise, because I think the um, the government at the moment is under a lot of pressure because all of the news around the migration issue and the rampant racism that's spreading through the country is giving it a particularly bad name. Um, and for them to put the cherry on top by also taking away free cultural offering, it really is turning them into a bit of a bogeyman figure it does seem miserly doesn't it It was what it was one sunday a month Yes, it was. Um, and I think the, the the idea is that it's a little bit like taking the having a website with a paywall and then for everybody to be able to access the content freely. So it's an, it's, it's an idea of devaluation more so than com, to combat austerity, really, because the, the, the amount of money that would be made by adding one extra day a month isn't as much to skew the whole big picture of things. Um, there's an argument that this has just been done because obviously there's been a change in political colour in the government and therefore a sense of wanting to go against whatever reform or or new initiative that the previous government had previously set up. And Franceschini's initiative of uh, the Domenica Museum was extremely popular, really. It was one of the few things that were undisputedly liked across the country. See, I... I I like the I like the system that obtains here in London, where they are all free. They ask they ask you to donate something, which I think is reasonable. And I suspect most people do because I, I come at this from the perspective of somebody who travels a lot, and I think there's kind of a, a, a reflex when you go to a place to think, ah, oh, I must visit Museum X, but they're, they're mostly incredibly tedious museums. I mean, they they I mean, this may just be me, but they, they are mostly boring. And, and and once you get absorbed that idea, you then start thinking, well, do I really want to pay ten? euros or whatever it is to go and see this collection of stuff in cases which I could find out more about probably just by reading something about it in a book or online. Potentially. I mean, we are, we're talking about Italy here. So the museums in Italy are some of the finest and most uh, uh, they're filled with some of the most extraordinary things in the world. This is true. So I... On one hand, I do have a bit of sympathy because you are talking about a country that's filled with artefacts that are priceless and so many buildings and all sorts of things that they, Italy, the world basically looks at Italy and says, you must maintain this 
and the rest of us don't really have that much so, so, as much history. So, so would you be happy to pay to get into the Uffizi or Samoa? I personally would be happy to pay because I'm a tourist. So what I'm upset about here is that it, it it's kind of locking this away from a lot of Italians. And I think, you know, if you, if you live here in London, you are already less likely to go to the museums because that's something that you do when you're on holidays, even though the museums here are free. But and they're fantastic. And they're fantastic. But you, that option is still there for us. And if you are an Italian, maybe you're a student um, who isn't earning very much money, you're not going to be paying your 15 euros to get into the Vatican. 15 euros is kind of a lot of money when you don't have that much anyway. So I, I tend to think that museums are a little bit like public broadcasting. They are there to provide information to people. And having an informed and educated population is actually a very, very good thing. And you would think that even for a, a government of the, the style that Italy has right now, they would want to have a population that is informed uh, and and educated, but uh, apparently they haven't made that connection. So I do think it is a little bit sad, and one would expect that surely if they're just going to get rid of this free Sunday a month, they could at least maintain that free Sunday for people who are living locally. That doesn't seem like such a stretch to me. Well, Paige, um, Il Giornale, the newspaper, and others have suggested that they could come up with a scheme whereby the museums are free to Italians uh, and visitors effectively pay for the upkeep. I do seem to remember that something of that sort, Chiara, didn't it used to be the case in Italy that it was either cheaper for locals or free? I'm sure I remember that the first time I went to Rome and feeling vaguely aggrieved. Uh, but, but Paige, would that strike you as fair enough? Yeah, I think that would strike me as fair. Um, when I lived in Moscow, there was the similar scheme that if you were a resident, you get in for next to nothing. If you're a student, you get subsidised. If you were over the age of uh, 65, you'd get subsidised. Um, if you were a kid, you'd go free. Um, I think that culture has to be as as open and as accessible to as many uh, fragments of society as possible um and Actually, so the the um, UK museums uh, opening up to be free to everyone that happened in two thousand and one, and a report about ten years later showed that um, there was about a fifty one percent increase in people going to museums. And what was interesting, there was also a twenty five percent increase in people going to museums that were already free, like the National Port Gallery, mm. um, Portrait Gallery, sorry, um, the Tate Modern. Um, and I think it's interesting how something like that can actually just create a culture whereby going to museums and going to art galleries is more normal. And I think that's that's what's really important, um, is that we sort of start to that we don't alienate people, I think, and make make it seem like it's high cultural, that it's only for, for the few, not the many. If everyone around you is going to the museum, it makes you more likely to want to go as well. Uh, it's interesting that there's a figure here in one of the news articles we've got here about it that says uh, it's a possible 53 million euro injection into the Italian economy. I don't know how they've come to that sum. Uh, one suspects that maybe it's based on the assumption that everyone who's going there now for free will then continue to go there and just pay for the ticket, I dare say it's probably going to result in quite a drop in attendance, which maybe as far as the government is concerned is a good thing because he says there are too many foreigners, so maybe he wants less foreigners. <laughs> but if he's worried about the economy, uh, it seems like a bit of a mismatched connection there. Uh I think one of the other worries was overcrowding as well, which I, I sort of ruminated on that for a while because I do think that when you go to a museum... 
um, when you go and see um, the Mona Lisa, for instance, if you've been to Paris, see that, and there's just hordes and hordes and hordes of people. It's, it, it can be quite difficult to really take in the the cultural take. You know what I mean? When mm. it, it can feel, I think they were talking about Michelangelo's David and how maybe there's risk, there's too many people around it, and I think that might be a fair point that if you're sort of just I, I, shuffling through, how can you really? I, I quite enjoy the spectacle of the crowds around those artworks, though. It's an exhibition in itself. Well, it, it is because, but it's not just the crowds around things like David or the Mona Lisa or similar. It's it's the people taking photos of them. <laughs> how, how does that conversation go when they show their pictures to people back home. That's the Mona Lisa. Is that what it looks like? I'll be damned. Amazing. The best thing that's ever happened to me was somebody taking a picture of a postcard in the shop at the end of the gallery <laughs> of an artwork they'd just seen in the gallery. I think that's quite extraordinary. I, mean, I think yeah. going back to the orbit crowding point, I don't think that's a payment issue and mm. I don't think it's a fee for entrance issue. I think it's a crowd management problem and you can mm. really just solve that by just controlling crowds going into the gallery. There's no need to charge them £15 for it. And also, isn't this just what happens when you build something that's really, really good? Lots of people want to come and see it. So, you know, that seems like a natural thing. That seems like what you want to happen. You know, having too many people is a good problem to have, but to stop those people from coming, you know, that seems like you're just misunderstanding what the whole point of the museum was in the first place. Okay, we are going to take a short break now. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, along with Paige Reynolds, Chiara Ramella, and Ben Ryland. Coming up next, diversity in creative industries. Everyone seems convinced it's a good idea. Is anyone actually doing anything about it? How do you unpack stories in the most engaging way while building a credible and comprehensive brand? Monocle Films visits three media companies in Paris, Munich and Tel Aviv to find out about the most innovative designs for paper and screen. It's good when you have lots of eyes or lots of thoughts on the same uh, topic and then at the end you can distill something new out of it. Uh, I've always been uh, interested in ideas from outside. This is uh, important for me. Designing the News, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House on Monocle 24 with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Paige Reynolds, Chiara Ramella and Ben Rylan. Now, earlier this week, it was announced that for the first time in the 126 years that Vogue has been publishing, its cover would be shot by a black photographer. The hiring of Tyler Mitchell was apparently at the insistence of the cover star, Beyonce. While this in itself raises a few questions about editorial ethics, it does also illustrate what remains a hefty gulf between the claims made by various media about their commitment to diversity and the reality. One study of the American music industry earlier this year, if memory serves, found 83.2% of artists were men, as were 90.7% of Grammy nominees and 98% of producers. Um, Kiara, first of all, this is obviously uh, not news uh, that the media, far from alone among industries around the world, uh, has been somewhat wanting on the diversity front. Um, why has it become such a talking point which is not to say it's never been a talking point before. This is me trying to feel my way through this, obviously, as a white guy. Um, why has it become such a talking point so recently? 
See, I have a real problem with this and I have a real problem with hashtag me too as well because I think this has been on the radar for ages before. Decades, I've been a staunch feminist for years and years and now we're referring to the cultural conversation going on at the moment as the world before me too and the world after me too. I don't find very much difference between those two worlds, um, specifically in factual terms as we are seeing from these reports, but also because the input that the convers- that's been put in by the conversation that was started by Me Too brought in nothing that wasn't known already. So the world that Me Too is supposedly highlighting that was under the carpet before was never under the carpet. Um, so I I think it's 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 time that we we take into consideration broader perspectives on this issue and we don't consider it done because finally people in Hollywood have decided to say something about it. Uh, Paige, does Hollywood congratulate itself untowardly about this? I mean, one of the big cinematic hits of this year has been Black Panther, Mm -hmm. which was obviously a monstrously successful film, very much enjoyed by the kind of people who enjoy movies of that ilk and so forth. But Hollywood did congratulate itself somewhat on the idea that there was this one film with a black cast in it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Black Panther was amazing because I think it uh, is a got a, a black superhero, so it's not just the sidekicks, not just comic relief, um, and obviously it was an, a predominantly black cast. Also, a lot of the behind the scenes crew um, were also black, which is which is really important because I think for a long time you had people putting black characters or LGBT characters or female characters on the screen, but if you don't have someone behind the camera, kind of who who knows their ex- lived experience, I think you're not really getting the full picture and people aren't being represented um, necessarily uh, fairly. Um, If we just look at maybe like the directors, the the stats for that, um, this year uh, Greta Gerwig was only the fifth woman to ever be nominated um, for Best uh, Director at the Oscars and also the Get Out director's Jordan Peele was um, only the fifth black director to ever be nominated. So yeah, there are these success stories here and there but I mean, the Oscars has been going on for 90 years, so that, that's, it's not great. We've got a long way to go, I think. Ben, the success of Black Panther, did that at least put to bed this idea which has often been floated? I used to hear it myself uh, when I worked for the music press that, you know, with the best of intentions we may have, we still have to sell magazines, and if we put black musicians on the cover of our magazine, we take a hit at the newsstands. Now, I'm not actually entirely convinced that that was ever true because the theory wasn't tested all that frequently. (laughs) Uh, But does... Has that one, at least at last being put to rest by Black Panther? I don't know, because Hollywood is not very good at learning lessons. You can have a massive hit, and then Hollywood will pass that off as, you know, oh, that was just that one time, and that was just a fluke, you know. It happens all the time. Uh, and I, I think the if we're talking about representation, then I think the major problem is that Hollywood is not making smaller films anymore. And that was really the difference. If you go back to the 1980s and into the 1990s, there was this middle ground of film that existed and it was just expected. So you had films like like uh, uh, Ferris Bueller, uh, Steel Magnolias, Terms of Endearment, Pretty Woman, When Harry Met Sally, You've Got Mail. All of these films were made for just people. You know, like they had target audiences, yes, but they were made for a very wide demographic. They weren't very expensive films either. 
Uh, and I mean, um, many of them were actually uh, um, made by women as well, and they usually will star a woman in the main the main role. Uh, so those are the sorts of films that aren't being made anymore, and I think that's a major problem because if you look at uh, some of the female directors who are working today, Catherine Bigelow, Jane Campion, uh, Sophia Coppola, uh, Patty Jenkins, of course, directed uh, Wonder Woman. Um, these Most of those directors I just mentioned, they will make a, a style of film that is a little bit smaller. They're not out there making these big comic book films, and if you take a look at what films are playing at the moment, they're all big tentpole franchises. And those things tend to be targeted at uh, a young male demographic. And so, of course, who do they want to make the films? Young men. If Hollywood wants to wake up and realize that actually everyone wants to go to the movies, then that would be great. But I think, unfortunately, well, maybe unfortunately for movies, but uh, a lot of that's already moved on to television. And if you look at the most popular television at the moment... It's all quite diverse. I think it's see that I, I don't see this as all bad news because if you look at uh, The Handmaid's Tale, Big Little Lies, RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, Queer Eye, Pose has just started. It's got a, a gay cast, a black cast, a transgender cast. There's The Good Fight and The Good Place, two completely unrelated shows with uh, similar names. Uh, Killing Eve is another one. Sandra Oh is a Canadian actress of Asian appearance. She's the first person of Asian appearance to be nominated for the best leading actress Emmy. So there, there is good news here. It's just not good news for Hollywood. Okay, well, finally tonight, we will move along to something completely different, uh, because while the bar for surprising cross-cultural pollinations has been raised high by our interconnected world, it seems nevertheless remarkable that a cartoon character from Finland has become a cult hit in China. Such, however, is what has befallen the cartoon Finnish Nightmares by Carolina Kohonen, whose simply drawn stick figure hero Matty, glumly anguished at any prospect of having to interact with others, has struck a chord with young Chinese in particular. A new word has joined the Chinese language, Jingfen, apologies for the doubtless mistaken pronunciation, or spiritually Finnish. Um, unfortunately, Marcus Hippie could not join us this evening because <laughs> his contribution uh, on this uh, would have been riveting. Uh, do we? First of all, I, I want to talk about the idea of spiritually Finnish, which, which to me just conjures up one of my favourite moments in sporting history, which was uh, Kimi Raikkonen, the Finnish racing driver, leading a Grand Prix for Lotus, I think, at Abu Dhabi a few years ago, and during the live coverage of it, they played the bit where his, his, uh, his excitable engineer is relaying the sequence of babbled instructions through his helmet, and once he finishes, there's this tiny beat of a pause and Raikkonen just says and I can't do a Finnish accent which makes it even funnier but it just says leave me alone I know what I'm doing <laughs> which is a brilliant thing for someone to say at 330 kilometers an hour in a racing car I think but is is that what we understand by spiritually Finnish we can say what we like Marcus isn't here <laughs> yeah Marcus is feeling too awkward today <laughs> um, <laughs> I uh I didn't know what spiritually Finnish was until I read this, but as I was reading through what this Finnish nightmares is, I, I my understanding is that this character feels obliged to uh, to uh, board a bus that he flagged by accident. And he uh, <laughs> he uh, avoids those free samples of food at the supermarket because he's terrified that he might have to be embroiled in a conversation with the with the lovely. This sounds lady like jokes people out. make about the British as well. I was just, I was just yeah. saying that it it's like, like me. you're so so polite. 
but you also don't want to interact. It's a really strange like thing to try and consolidate. Because it's exhausting. I think I think if anyone out there is an, uh, listening now as an introvert, all, probably a lot of this will sound familiar because those sorts of things, there's just that, that general act of being pleasant. It's not that you're unpleasant, but just the act of being pleasant in a public setting for the sake of just being a friendly, nice person, it's incredibly exhausting sometimes. Uh, I did want to ask you all briefly if you have any particular favourite uh, cartoon or similar characters from childhood or elsewhere that you think do have perhaps a more universal resonance in them. I will start with you, Paige. (laughs) I was thinking about this for ages, and I don't know if I just didn't watch that many cartoons, but I couldn't think of anyone that really, like, typified that sort of uh, very quintessential British awkwardness. That's what I was looking for. I was almost looking for a cartoon exactly (laughs) like this. Maybe this is what was missing um, in my childhood. And the only cartoon I could really think about that that has actually exported globally is um, Peppa Pig. Apparently that is very, very popular. Almost 200 countries, about a million dollars in terms of its value. I mean, and fun fact, the voice of Peppa Pig went to my school. (laughs) Outstanding. Outstanding. Kiara? See, I don't think I've reached for global appeal here, but I've just picked the one that I used to like, which I think for me is suitably a a reason good enough for it to have global domination of the cartoon market. Um, the the cartoon the, the the cartoon's called Dylan Dog. Um, it's yeah 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 no, but it's not a dog actually. It's a person. Ah, there's who, a twist. Yes, <laughs> no, he's actually a mystery detective who lives in London around Baker Street, if I'm not wrong. I think actually, and his the whole idea is a horror kind of detective uh, story where every single episode brings him to zombies and vampires and all the rest of it. Um, and for a very, very long time, I thought it was a British cartoon. Uh, and only now do I realise it was Italian. So we were doing it, they were doing the exploitation all along. Uh, ben, we have about 35 seconds to explain Mr Squiggle to, to, to <laughs> non-Australians, a pencil-nosed habitue of the moon who would descend in a rocket and do sketches on a foul-tempered billboard while a steam shovel made jokes. And the, the snail had a television for a shell, didn't it? Uh, Gus the did snail? He? Yeah, I I think I'm pretty sure Gus the snail the had a television I've for a snail. Unless I spent my entire childhood on drugs and I just made all that up. But that, that did all happen, didn't it? <laughs> that did all happen, yeah. It was one of the most popular television shows in, in Australia. Not a cartoon, I will say, but it wasn't a Mr. Cartoon, Squiggle, had, puppets. as you said, had a pencil for a nose and he would draw cartoons. You have to guess what he was drawing while he was drawing it. Uh, and absolute master of a puppeteer there because he was, he was animating the puppet and drawing a picture. Most of the time upside down. It was extraordinary. I do recommend it. I'm sure it's on YouTube to our listeners. Unfortunately, we have not enough time for Ben and I to sing you all out with the theme tune. Uh, (laughs) That does bring us to the end of today's show. Paige Reynolds, Chiara Ramella and Ben Ryland, thank you for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Carlotta Ribello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Anna Shevetchka. Our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next at 1900. It's The Menu with Marcus Hippie. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. I'm your host for that as well, Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend.